Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. And for the rest of the hour on Forum, wages for folks who work for tips. You know, like restaurant workers and bartenders. You know, in most states, people who work for gratuities earn less than the state minimum wage plus tips. Uh, Their minimum wage can be as low as $2.13. And that compares with the national minimum of $7.25 an hour. And a new film titled Waging Change highlights problems with the current system and the campaign to change it. Joining me, our Bay Area filmmaker, Abby Ginsberg. She produced and directed Waging Change. Abby, welcome. Thank you for having me. And also here, Saru Jayaraman. She is president of One Fair Wage and director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. Welcome to you as well. Thank you. And I'm going to give out the phone number because this is a half-hour segment. I'll give it out now. We'd love to hear from you if you work in the industry. Now, we should say California is one of seven states, and I learned this in the film, uh, that uh, does require minimum wage. So this is not the case in California, but it is in the majority of states. But we'd love to hear from you if you work maybe in another state or what your experience has been uh, as a tip worker. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. And you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Let me begin by getting sort of the lay of the land, if I can, from you, Saru. What, like I mentioned, California is sort of exempt from this because we do pay, we do require restaurant and but anyone working for tips to also make the state minimum wage. But what, what's the rest of the country looking like? The rest of the country uh, has has honestly, it's been a it's been a crisis of immense proportions even prior to the pandemic. And during the pandemic, the sub minimum wage for tipped workers, which, as you said, is as low as two dollars and thirteen cents an hour. Honestly, it transformed from being an issue of racial, gender, and economic justice to becoming a matter of life or death. So I think that is why, and it's important to note that is why. Uh, it has been included in the $15 minimum wage bill that is now moving, currently moving as part of President Biden's American Rescue Plan. Uh, that full COVID relief package includes a $15 minimum wage and full elimination of the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, which, as I mentioned, has been a source of suffering for, for honestly, 150 years since emancipation, but during the pandemic has become a true crisis of life-threatening proportions. And uh, Abby, the uh, as you point out in the film, some of these folks who, who work full-time jobs in some of these states where they're making far less than the minimum wage, uh, are rec- they could use, they need government assistance to get by, but they don't always qualify. Well, and that's because if you're only getting $2.13, in many cases, that's all the employer is reporting. So when the restaurant industry essentially shut down the day after we were all under, you know, kind of lockdown due to the pandemic, many of these workers tried to get unemployment insurance and were found to have been making too little money. So they were below the floor to even qualify for it. 
because in some cases tips hadn't been reported or in fact even with tips they didn't make enough money so it's it's an outrageous situation um and and what i would say about the pandemic is that you know my film was finished originally before the pandemic and then all the problems that i identified only got a million times worse since last march and so there is a, a sort of an increasing understanding of the fact that we have to do something about this now. And I just want to say one other thing which relates to what you asked, which is that people sometimes have to work two and three jobs just to make ends meet in these 213 states. We, you know, identify Wardell, we interview Wardell Harvey, who works part-time, you know, full-time as a barber and full-time as a restaurant server. And that is insane because as he says in the film, I should not have to be able, I should not have to work 16 hours a day to put food on the table. Yeah. Well, let's hear part of what we're talking about. Yeah, and let's hear a little clip from the film. Uh, and again, the film is called Waging Change. And you can uh, see it, by the way, on KQED TV this Friday at 8 o'clock. It premieres again Friday at 8 o'clock. And let's hear a, a little clip. Uh, this is a section where workers are talking about the need to rely on public assistance. I have been on government assistance since my son was two. It's demoralizing to work 60 hours a week and to not bring home enough money to provide for the basic needs of your child. 70% of tip workers are women. They're women who work at IHOP, Applebee's, and diners all across America. And they suffer from two times the poverty rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce. Nearly half of tipped workers rely on public subsidies to make ends meet. I didn't think I was going to still be on public assistance while I'm in this industry. This is heated up. I had to get on food stamps. I had to get a medical card. I couldn't stay in my place. So you think that's what I want? No, that ain't what I want. Mm-mm. It burns me up every time I think about it. And again, that is from the new film, Waging Change. We're talking with filmmaker, producer, and director, Abby Ginsberg and Saru Jayaraman. She's president of One Fair Wage. And um, you mentioned in the film, uh, you highlight in the film, really, this organization, this industry group, which you call the Other NRA, Abby, uh, and that is the the National Restaurant Association. Uh, Obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, but they do oppose increasing wages for workers what's their what's their what kind of clout do they have significant they have managed to keep the tip minimum wage suppressed at 213 i mean to they cut a deal in 1991 to keep the minimum wage at the tip minimum wage at 213 saying that they would not oppose increasing the regular minimum wage so they have tremendous clout i mean they pay a lot of money to a lot of you know elected officials in washington Uh, We have a little clip of seeing them go off to their lobbying day. They are a very significant force and they're, you know, they're mobilizing to oppose the ending of the tip minimum wage right now. And how is it, uh, Saru, that California and these six other states are uh, didn't didn't go this way, that they do require restaurants and bars and others to uh, to abide by that minimum wage law in in our state? Yeah, to understand that, I think it's super important to just, especially this month, Black History Month, understand the history of this issue. So the let me just say really quickly, because we do have to take a break in about 40 seconds, so we can come back to it. But just if you could keep your your answer short here. The Southern Wage is a direct legacy of slavery. It was created at emancipation and 40 or 50 years ago, basically workers organized in California and six other states to reject that legacy of slavery. 
Um, so I, I think it's so important to note that for 150 years, the Restaurant Association in various forms has been lobbying to keep these workers' wages at zero or two. Uh, all right. After a short break, we're going to continue this conversation and come back to that topic of equity, gender, and racial equity in this issue. We'll be right back. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. And welcome back to our conversation about wages for tip workers. We're talking with filmmaker Abby Ginsberg and activist Saru Jayaraman about Waging Change, their new film. It premieres on KQED-TV at 8 o'clock this Friday. And just before the break, Sarah, again, apologies for interrupting you, but we were talking about the, the legacy of racism and uh, within the restaurant industry and servers generally. And, um, you know, the, as you point out in the film, there are a lot of different layers to this kind of uh, differential status. I mean, the back uh, the back of the restaurant is often people of color. Uh, women get lower wages historically, I think, uh, tips rather than uh, men do often. Uh, say more about that, that inequity that exists, uh, even quite apart from the low wage they're getting. Yeah. So just to, to spend two seconds more on where this comes from, I mean, so... Uh, listen, tipping originated in feudal Europe. It was an extra or bonus that uh, aristocrats wanted to give serfs and vassals, but always on top of a wage. The idea of tips replacing wages really is a unique American contribution um, that comes directly from employers not wanting to pay black people or women. Right before emancipation, waiters went on strike across America. They were men who went on strike that, and they were replaced largely with women. And then emancipation happened and with black people entering the, the labor force in large numbers, the paid labor force in large numbers, um, the restaurant industry wanted to be able to hire them, not pay them anything at all and continue this, you know, to be able to profit off black labor without paying for it uh, and thus mutated the notion of tipping from being an extra or bonus to becoming the wage itself. So I think it's so important to first note that the very origins of this wage structure that is now being considered to be eliminated this this spring as part of the american rescue plan is it really comes from you know a moment where women at entrance of women and black people into the industry zeroed out the wage literally zeroed out the wage which is a direct valuation of an american history of america's value of black people and women and that became law in 1938 as part of the new deal when everybody got the right to the minimum wage for the first time except for millions of black people you know tipped workers but also farm workers and domestic workers and they were told you get a zero dollar wage tipped workers were told as long as tips bring you to the full minimum wage fast forward to today, 70% of tipped workers are women, the vast, they're disproportionately women of color. And yes, they struggle with all kinds of racial inequity. Women of color are segregated into more casual restaurants where they make less money in tips. Um, even if they make it into fine dining, customer bias results in them earning less than their white male counterparts. And that results in a $5 per hour wage gap between white workers and workers of color across the country. And unfortunately, the Bay Area 
even though our wages are higher and we've gotten rid of that subminimum wage, we still have one of the highest race wage gaps in the in the restaurant industry of any region in the U.S. And that's because we as a as a region have not dealt with racial inequity in the industry as we've pushed to raise wages. So we we still have a long way to go in California as well. But this issue of a subminimum wage has really exacerbated that. We released a report this month showing that everything that was devastating about this for workers during the pandemic was 10 times worse for black workers. So I mentioned that this issue has gone from an issue of race and gender and, and economic injustice to becoming life-threatening. And what do I mean by that? Well, during the pandemic, not only did workers not get unemployment insurance, as Abby mentioned, but then millions were forced to go back to work before they felt safe. And when they did, they found that they were being asked to do more for less. They were being asked to now be public health marshals, enforcing social distancing and mask rules on the very same customers from whom they had to get tips. And about 70% of workers said their tips went down as a result of trying to enforce these rules. 80% of black workers said that they were punished by customers for trying to enforce these rules. Yeah. Um, you know, 80% of all workers said their tips went down 50% yep. or more. 90% yep. of black workers said the same thing. So um, this has always been a racial inequity, but you know, now with the pandemic, we're seeing workers punished for trying to enforce these rules. And worst of all, we're hearing from hundreds of women that they're being asked to remove their masks yeah. so that they well, can judge their looks and their tips on that basis. Well, and I think in the film you refer to some of these issues as certainly they've come to more uh, more attention in the pandemic, but they were, as you say, pre-existing conditions that existed within the, within these industries. I want to play another uh, clip from the film, but first I want to give out the phone number again. It's 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. And uh, we'd love to hear from you, especially if you have personal experience as a waiter, bartender. And let's hear from uh, a rather famous member of Congress who's in the film, um, somebody who was a bartender before she got elected, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, if you prefer, uh, it talks about her experience. And let's hear a little bit of that. I remember working in restaurants and you would have someone say something extremely inappropriate to you, or you'd have someone touch you. And the thing is, is it would be the 28th of the month, the 29th of the month. And the first of the next month was rolling right around and you had a rent check to pay. And so you were more likely to stand up for yourself and to reject sexual harassment on the 15th of the month or maybe the 10th of the month when you could pick up an extra shift to make up for telling that guy to go buzz off. But on the 28th of the month or the 29th of the month, you will let that person touch you because of your economic desperation. It's not just about, oh, I need to accept this because I'm going to get a tip. It's about the actual instability of the environment that you have. What happens if I complain about this? Will my shifts be changed? Will all of a sudden I have to work super late nights as opposed to afternoons or mornings? There's a lot of fear around retribution just for standing up for yourself. And again, that is from the film Waging Change, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez there in that clip. And uh, Abby Ginsburg, that's a whole other dimension to this, quite apart from, well, not apart from, it's quite related, as, as we just heard there, to wages. And that is uh, sexual harassment or assault, even, that women in particular face in these kinds of jobs. Well, let me just say, you know, one thing that sort of happens during the life of a film is that things change in the external world in ways that you can't anticipate. 
So just like I could not have anticipated the pandemic, I did not, we did not anticipate the Me Too movement coming kind of to the fore while I was making this film. So one of the things that happened is, you know, uh, restaurant servers have been at the forefront of complaining about sexual harassment among workers in general. However, there has been such discrediting of women's voices around these issues. And then Me Too happens and suddenly there is more credit being given. So one of the sequences that we have in the film is how many high profile, well-known restaurant owners, you know, really were called to task and may have lost their access to their restaurant or whatever as a result of the Me Too movement. So I felt like there was a bit of a sea change and so there was a sea change in people being acknowledged and for telling the truth, et cetera. And then there was sort of a reduction for a short period of time around sexual harassment. And then boom, the pandemic hits and we've got what Saru was calling masculine harassment, where the whole thing just gets reinforced all over again. So so this, the you know, the sort of history of the filmmaking moment that I've been in for the last three or four years has shown a moment where work, women workers were really being believed and there was a reduction and there was some training taking place and so on. And then boom, the whole thing happens around, you know, the forcing people to wear masks and having to force the, the customers to wear it. And we're back where we started, which is totally depressing to me. Yeah. So the one thing I want to say is that this is a film that is designed to open the eyes of the consumers, which is essentially all of us who are listening to this show and all of us who eat in any restaurant, et cetera. And please be aware of the fact that when your server wearing a mask approaches your table, it is appropriate for you to put your mask back on so that you are not potentially exposing them to whatever you may be carrying. And people just forget that when they're out to eat. Yeah, yeah. And I feel bad for the servers because they have to keep reminding you, and I'm sure they don't want to be doing that either. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's obvious. Uh, I want to go to the phones. I'll give out the number one more time. 866-733-6786. Let's go to Melissa in San Francisco. Welcome. Uh, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Go right ahead. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I work in San Francisco, and I'm very fortunate to be able to get the minimum wage here. But I'm a gig worker, and, you know, money is tight for everyone. And when I deliver to people... Um, you know, sometimes I get cookies, sometimes I get, you know, tips other than money, and I'm grateful for that, but also we have to realize that I, I'm working for those tips, and especially because of the pandemic, not a lot of people have that extra money to give to anyone, and I'm just baffled that other states don't even have, like, the minimum wage uh, for these gig workers. I, I don't understand, because sometimes, you know, uh, people can't give money as tips. Um, but they'll, they'll go and use our services, which is great. But I just, I don't understand why, um, gig workers and, you know, restaurant workers are not making minimum wage. I'll take my answer Yeah, thanks very much, Melissa. And, uh, and sorry, you might want to comment on that, but also the fact uh, that, you know, restaurants in these states where they don't get the minimum wage are supposed to make up the difference if their tips fall short overall of making, uh, making it essentially the minimum wage in that state. They're supposed to make up the difference, but they don't really. Or, and it really falls to the worker to push for that, which, of course, that, that's an uneven power dynamic. That's right. Um, 
look, you know, in 2019, we there was an expose and we did a bunch of research to show that a bunch of the gig companies were essentially emulating what the restaurant industry had done for 150 years, which is uh, cutting work delivery workers payments by how much they got tipped. That was exposed in the New York Times in early 2019 and people were outraged. And, and we said it is outrageous. And in fact, that's what's been happening every time you eat out in 43 states in the US, every time you eat out and you tip, it actually cuts against the workers wage because technically when you tip, that allows the employer to pay the worker less than the minimum wage. And yes, you're right. Uh, there is technically a law that says the employer needs to make up the difference when tips don't bring you to the full minimum wage. But it is under the Obama administration that we had the highest levels of enforcement of that rule. And they found an 84% violation rate with regard to employers actually following those rules. And in fact, the Solicitor General for U.S. Department of Labor under Obama found declared the issue unenforceable. She said, we cannot enforce this rule. It is unenforceable. And I think it comes down to what the caller was saying, that honestly, even if that is the law, that employers have to make up the difference, everybody should just get the minimum wage. As long as there's a sub-minimum, even if employers technically have to count and make sure tips bring you to the full minimum wage, uh, you still have a mostly female workforce tolerating all kinds of inappropriate customer behavior so much worse during the pandemic in order to make up that base wage and tips. Everybody should just get the minimum wage. This just got a lot worse with Prop 22 in California, um, which UC Berkeley research, you know, Labor Research Center showed that, in fact, will result in, a, in an actual sub-minimum wage for gig workers in California. And so what we need to do both in California and nationally is, is make sure all workers, gig workers, restaurant workers, incarcerated workers, workers with disability, everybody get an actual full minimum wage from their employer. After all, that is what a minimum wage was intended to be. The yeah. minimum that you could get. Yeah, yeah. Minimum that you can get for work. I want to just, uh, before Abby, I heard you wanted to say something back there, but I, I just want to, we have some, a little bit of news, a statement today released uh, by the uh, Restaurant Association, the National Restaurant Association, about the proposed Raise the Wage Act, and they said that raising the federal minimum wage would lead to job losses and higher use of labor-reducing equipment and technology, as well as an increase in menu prices. And, Abby, that, that is sort yeah. of what we hear all the time whenever there's discussion of raising the minimum wage as well. And most of us, you know, again, it's like I have I don't even know what a price say of a hamburger or a salad is anymore since we haven't really been able to eat out. But the fact is that stuff gets absorbed over time. One of the things that the Restaurant Association tries to do is to scare you that, you know, employers are going to have to go from paying, say, seven twenty five an hour to paying fifteen dollars an hour overnight. Well, that's not the way it works. It's phased in over time. There are ways to plan for this. And all the, you know, kind of red herrings that the National Restaurant Association puts out there needs to be understood that this is part of a, you know, multi-decade campaign that they have been waging to make sure that we never get out from under this tip minimum wage staying essentially at slave wages level. All right. Let's go back to the phones again. And David in Berkeley, you're next. David, go right ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say I've owned three restaurants and smaller restaurants that you're working in your own shop constantly, very hard to make uh, anything work. And the problem with the, uh, the, this, the problem in these other states, yes, that sounds unjust. 
there needs to be some minimum wage uh, platform uh, baselines. But when you have the back of the house uh, earning 15 or more, and then you have your waiters who are often doing the easiest job in the house, making force, you're forced to pay them the same 15, and they make three times of that in tips. Um, there's a vast disparity that forces you to raise the back of the house prices, uh, wages, which is good, but it, this is all going to the consumers. And the consumers balk at these price increases. And uh, so it makes the, the business untenable in the long run. Yeah. I got out of it precisely because of these pressures. Yeah. Thank David, thanks very much for the call. Saru, what do you, what, what's your response to David? Several things to say. First of all, in 2018, I don't know when you left the business, David, but in 2018, uh, we actually passed a bill in Congress that says that if you pay the full minimum wage, as we do in California, tips actually can be shared with back of house workers. So um, there, there is now an opportunity to make things more equitable and, you know, it doesn't have to be 50, 50, but now there is the legal opportunity to actually uh, create more equity between front and back, both racial equity and uh, income equity. But I do, I do want to say, you know, what we see, and we have an association about 800 small business restaurants, including over 100 in California, that are extremely supportive of $15 and full elimination of the subminimum wage for tipped workers, as we have it here in California, and um, and. They, they're supportive because they've seen the data that we've seen, which is that, in fact, California has had actually higher small business growth rates. Even the chains that lead the other NRA have had higher growth rates in California, it's job growth rates and small business establishment growth rates than, frankly, any other state in the U.S. And we just uncovered data of business closures during the pandemic, and we found that business closures in California were less than they are in states with wages of two and three dollars an hour. Yeah, having uh, having that lower wage doesn't actually doesn't actually save you from a pandemic. Yeah, and on the contrary, paying people well actually creates more consumption in the economy. Let me read some comments from listeners here. Uh, Namiko writes, as a former restaurant worker for the last decade, I experienced not just sexual harassment but racial harassment too. This would not be acceptable in any other environment without being addressed. We need an overhaul in the entire industry. Uh, the restaurant industry from wages to racial and sexual harassment in the workplace. And then Casey writes, would we still tip if the tipped minimum wage is repealed? I probably wouldn't tip anymore. Um, what's your response to that, Abby? And, uh, you know, yeah, go, go, go ahead. Okay. So, uh, you know, my response is I will continue to tip at 20, you know, 20 percent in California and more in the lower rate states. Um, so, I, I mean, I mean, the one thing about tipping is it's kind of embedded in our whole experience of going. So I don't really believe that $15 is a real living wage either. Yeah. By the time we get to $15 in 2000 and whatever, 2025, 2026, it's not going to be enough to live on. So yeah. I actually believe we are still going to be tipping on into the future to help workers get to what really looks like a living wage. All right. Well, thanks very much for making this film. And as I said, you can watch it Friday night at 8 o'clock on KQED. It's called Waging Change. Filmmaker Abby Ginsberg, activist Saru J. Araman, thank you both very much. And thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks for the great comments. I apologize we couldn't get to them all, but well, there's always tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening, Scott Schaefer. I'll be back tomorrow. We'll talk to you then.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.